listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. How many of you are really excited to hear from the Word of God today? All right. We've got a lot to cover, a lot to cover. So I'm going to try to crash course this because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together today. And so we're going to stop. We're going to slow things down, pause and really dig deep into what the scriptures teach about the Lord's Supper so that by the time we enjoy the Lord's Supper, we really will be able to have a meaningful, significant time together. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Few things to understand about the Lord's Supper, what we commonly call and refer to today as communion, is that it is much more serious than we tend to understand. The Lord's Supper is a very serious matter. It is a matter of bitter sweetness. It's bitter in that it is always, every single time, a reminder of the tremendously high price that was paid for you and for me, for every single person who's given their life to Jesus Christ. There was a tremendously high price that was paid through the body of Jesus Christ, voluntarily, willingly, sacrificing himself. Remember, Jesus was not murdered He was a sacrifice. He willingly gave himself so that you and I could have intimacy with God, fellowship with God, relationship with God. So there's a bitter, sweet aspect about communion. The bitterness is based on the fact of the tremendously high price that was paid. The sweetness is based on the consequence or the result of that price that was paid led you and me leads to our ability to have fellowship with God, friendship with God. And so communion is a very serious thing. The Lord's Supper is a very serious thing. How serious that there are instances where God himself exerts divine, listen to this, 
Watch this. This needs to hit us at an emotional level. It needs to go beyond the gray matter into the heart to affect us at a lifestyle level. There are times where God intervenes supernaturally and disciplines his people, judges his people for not taking the Lord's Supper with the seriousness and the earnestness with which it should be enjoyed. Look at what he says here in verse 30, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The Corinthians were experiencing the disciplinary judgment of God, the disciplinary hand of God, because they were not taking the Lord's Supper seriously. They were using it to fill their own bellies with the wine and with the bread and with everything else that was there at the love feast, the festival within the festival. All right. Many of you have seen that movie, for example, The Princess Bride, where they're standing on the wedding day and the priest who's doing the wedding ceremony says, marriage, a dream within a dream, right? And I'll be a fool for Christ's sake. I'll be happy to do that. Well, well, the Lord's Supper, communion, is really a supper within a supper. See, the original context of the Lord's Supper was often more meaningful, more rich, more deep, more significant than we tend to understand it today as Gentiles. Look what he says here. This is why he says in verse 33 and 34, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Why is he bringing up this idea of waiting for one another and having a meal if there wasn't significant grub to be had? Nobody's going to have communion in the modern sense of communion and be at risk of eating too much, overeating. Very few of us, okay, because typically it's a little piece of bread, it's a little bit of juice, but here it was a meal within the meal. The Lord's Supper was something that took place in the context of a larger meal. That's why he says in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So it is possible to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, to just have it disintegrate into just a meal, we're just having a meal together, and to lose sight of it being a memorial service for the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, the first coming of Jesus Christ as we await the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus. And whenever, if ever, an individual or individuals or within a church body, the people lose sight of the purpose of the Lord's Supper or Communion, they put themselves at risk for divine discipline. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There is this idea of God's holiness, God's character, God's nature being so important and the observation of the Lord's Supper being so significant and so important that it must be preserved. There must be integrity when it comes to the Lord's Supper. When we don't take the significance of the sacrifice that was offered, Jesus, as being right before us as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we diminish, we belittle what God took deliberate detail to make sure it happened precisely on purpose so that we would never forget and we can open ourselves up to the disciplinary hand of God. Now, we've all heard it said, we've all heard people quote Jesus, don't judge 
and you won't be judged, right? It's in the Gospels, Jesus saying, don't judge and you won't be judged. And so people have taken that out of context and think that you can't say anything about anybody's life any longer. It just means don't judge anybody. And the people who are politically correct have done a very effective job of twisting the scriptures. What Jesus was teaching there in the Gospels when he said, don't judge and you won't be judged, what he was teaching there is that basically the way you treat other people, if you look at the whole rest of the context, will eventually come back and you'll be treated in the same way that you treat other people. Give and it will be given to you. For with the measure that you use and how you treat other people, other people, generally speaking, will treat you. Now, there are always exceptions to that. People treat us more kindly than we deserve at times. People treat us more unkindly than we deserve at times. But generally speaking, that teaching of Jesus, given it will be given to you, do not judge and you won't be judged, was given in the context of interpersonal relationships, that the way that you treat other people, generally speaking, is the way that other people are going to treat you. But Jesus was not by any way, shape, or form, Jesus was not by any means saying never judge anybody's behavior. Because if that was the case, then Paul would have been completely out to lunch here, no pun intended with the communion discussion that we're having, the Lord's Supper discussion, Paul would have been absolutely out to lunch by talking about judgment when he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Human judgment, self-examination, rightly before God, being honest to God about where you really are, can actually spare you Spare me, spare people from divine judgment. So it's a good thing, it's a godly thing, it's a biblical thing to judge yourself at an appropriate time before God can step in and judge divinely. Have I lost anybody with that? The Bible teaches very clearly that we are to examine ourselves. We are to judge ourselves. We are to deal candidly with the Lord about the truth that he already knows. That's what humility is. Humility is agreeing with God about what he already knows. And the moment that God speaks to you about an area or areas of your life, it's always good to get into the practice of saying yes to God even before we know what he's going to say to us. So that when God then does speak to us about an area or areas of our lives, we're already there with him. Our commitment to God is not to obey him once we agree with his plan and his purpose. That's a very dangerous place to be. You see, we agree with God because of his character and his nature and his worthiness, period. And in the course of time, it becomes clearer what his plan and his purpose might be. So if you make it your ambition to follow God only because the plan and the purpose seems to be sensible to you, you're going to get stuck. I've been stuck. You might be stuck right now in that situation. But if you make it your ambition to follow God because of his nature and his character, you won't care where he leads you. You won't care what his plan is, what his purpose is, because your commitment is to God, not your own wisdom in discerning the leading of God. Do you understand the difference there? Huge, huge, huge difference. 
And so it is important for the follower of Jesus Christ to examine themselves, to judge themselves, to agree with God about what he already knows, to be humble, and to submit themselves to God continually in order to avoid the disciplinary supernatural intervention of God, whereas in the case of the Corinthians, some were weak and ill and some died. Now, in the case where some died, that was the most extreme case because they didn't listen to God when God had judged them and poured out a bit of weakness. Should have gotten their attention because they didn't listen when the weakness led to an overt, supernaturally caused divine illness. They didn't listen to that. And so if somebody's not listening to the supernatural intervention of God, the judgment of God, the disciplinary hand of God that creates weakness, it can lead to illness, and the illness can lead to death by God. Can actually happen. It's here in the scriptures. And so God's word is definitely judge yourself. Definitely examine yourself, especially when it comes to the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Because if you eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, other than proclaiming the Lord's death, other than recognizing and remembering the Lord's death, the tremendously high price that was paid, you can bring divine judgment, divine discipline on yourself. And God will not be mocked. He will not let his holiness be compromised, and that's why he will and he does and he has stepped in. He does step in at times, and he does discipline so that his name and his reputation are not defamed and not dishonored. So if you find yourself in a position of weakness or an illness, the first thing that you might want to do would be, Lord, could this in any way, shape, or form be divine intervention where you're trying to get my attention? And the beauty of God doesn't lead us on a wild goose chase. The Holy Spirit is given to us for the purpose of bringing conviction so that the Lord will bring to our attention that sin or those sins, that area or areas of our lives that have been out of whack with God, that need to come back into alignment. Maybe it's somebody you need to forgive. Maybe it's somebody you need to stop speaking about the way you've been speaking about them. Maybe it's, in this instance, not taking seriously the Lord's death as memorialized through the Lord's Supper. So communion, the Lord's Supper, is a very serious thing. It's bittersweet. The Lord's Supper, communion originally happened within a context that we don't typically tend to understand in 21st century America. Typically, there was a meal that this was part of. It was a meal within a meal. And the Lord's Supper has Old Testament roots. It originated in the Old Testament. We'll get there in just a moment. But first, I want to look at John chapter 19, the Gospel of John chapter 19, that's going to help us understand specifically how Jesus was and Jesus is associated with the Passover. 
John chapter 19, verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. This becomes incredibly significant. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek, all of the common languages of that city in that area of the day. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Remember that in this election year that God can use a carnal individual to achieve supernatural objectives. Remember that in the midst of this presidential election. God can use carnal individuals to accomplish supernatural objectives. Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. This is Jesus' undergarment, his underwear, okay? So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, this is Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Even Jesus' underwear was used to fulfill scripture. Every aspect of the life of Jesus was by design to point people to what the Bible says about him, what the Old Testament says about him, and to point people to the reality that he was and is, in fact, the fulfillment of the scriptures. Now, that's good. That's a good lesson for you and for me to take to heart. If everything about Jesus was to point people to his father and to point people to the scriptures that would point people to him and to his father, then it's probably a good thing for you and for me as a follower of Jesus Christ to follow suit. Even Jesus' underwear, one piece, seamless, was seen as something valuable. That's why they cast lots. They didn't want to tear it in half. They cast lots even for his clothing, and that fulfilled Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. So the soldiers did these things. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said these three words, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Remember, it is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't say those words and then wink. 
There's nothing else that you can do to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Nothing else that I can do to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, it is finished. That means it is finished. What was finished? Everything that Jesus needed to do to appease the Father, to be the one mediator between God the Father and you and me, everything that God required was fulfilled in his son Jesus. There is nothing that you can add, nothing that I can add to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. Take a deep breath in and let that deep breath out. Take a sigh of relief. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. Great, great, great news. And so he said, it is finished. Okay? And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, there it is again, and so the bodies, so that the bodies, those on the cross, would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you might also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. God was doing the right thing at the right time. You know, it's significant what is said here in John's gospel. In verse 14, it says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And then John says it again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, the preparation day. What preparation day? This is the day before the Passover. Notice that it says that that day, in verse 31, that Sabbath was a high day. It wasn't a typical Sabbath. The festival of Passover is happening, and the day before it is the day of preparation. You say, well, what does that mean? It's the day of preparation. It means they prepared things. It means more than that. You need to understand it from the Jewish perspective. The preparation day was the day when the people, the Jewish people, whether you were in Jerusalem or in the outlaying parts, wherever you were as a Jew, if you were going to participate in the Passover on the day before the preparation day, the day before the high Sabbath, you would be killing the Passover lamb. That's what you would be doing. That's what it means to be the preparation day. On that day before the Passover, the Passover lambs were killed so that on the day of the Passover, the Passover lamb could be part central to the whole Passover festival, the Passover feast. Now, it's interesting and it's significant that John has Jesus being crucified on that very same day. 
on the day when all of the Passover lambs were being killed, on the day of preparation, that is the day that John says that Jesus, our Passover lamb, was crucified on the cross to fulfill some symbolism, to fulfill what the Bible talks about as a type, a kind. And Paul, the apostle, drives home the point in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, when he says this, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Something fundamental happens to a person when they give their life to Jesus Christ as their Passover lamb. For that very first time, a change fundamentally takes place within them. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. The moment that somebody gives their life to Jesus Christ and sincerity and truth begin to take over. Sincerity and truth begin to become, they, they begin to be the new way of living. You're no longer dealing in malice and in evil, but now sincerity and in truth. Now nobody comes to know Christ and at that very moment all of their sin behavior comes to an end. This doesn't happen. But what does happen is that you now have a new disposition and a new capability empowered by the Holy Spirit to say no to things you otherwise couldn't say no to and to say yes to God in a way that you couldn't say yes to him before. And you begin to be characterized more and more and more and more by sincerity and in truth. And what Paul says is that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Not talking about just the, the Jewish festival of Passover. He's raising the standard as God is raising the standard. That now, the rest of our lives are to be lived as a festival to God. The entirety of our lives are now to be lived as a feast and a festival to God characterized by sincerity and truth that was not possible before you accepted Jesus Christ as your Passover lamb. So it's huge that Paul connects the dots for us and helps us understand that this is that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was pointing to in Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover. Look with me. Exodus chapter 12. It's a huge thing here. In Exodus chapter 12, I'm going to begin in verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. The importance there is that this was a covenant meal between God and God's people. That's why no foreigner is to eat of it. This is for the Jewish people. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. Again, circumcision being the sign of the Old Testament covenant. So what's being brought forth here in the celebration of the Passover is that you had to be rightly related to God as one of his people, one of his covenant people in order to partake in the Passover. And this becomes incredibly important by the time we get to the Lord's Supper, which is the meal within the meal of Passover, okay? Verse 45, no foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. Again, the, the amplification, the emphasis that this is for God's people. 
Verse 46, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. You shall not break any of its bones. That lamb was to be a lamb without spot, without blemish, the best of the best. And none of that lamb's bones were to be broken. You are to break none of its bones. Incredibly significant because when we read in John chapter 19 what John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we understand that God wants us to connect the dots. He wants us to understand that this Jesus is that one that the Old Testament Passover lamb was pointing to. The Old Testament Passover lamb was a type, a kind of Jesus who would be flawless, spotless, the best of the best of the best without sin. Animals are amoral. They're neither guilty or not guilty. They're not, they, they, they don't have a sin nature the way human beings do. That's why God could accept for a time being the Old Testament animal sacrifice as a looking forward to the ultimate human sacrifice in the God-man Jesus, who was without spot and without blemish. So when we read in John chapter 19, look at what he says here toward the end here. In verse 36 and 37 of John 19, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And we read that in Exodus chapter 12 in regard to the Passover lamb. And then in verse 37 of John 19, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. If we look at Psalm 34, verse 20, look with me at Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. See, the Old Testament Passover lamb was to be fully intact with no bone broken because that lamb was pointing to the spotless, sinless, sacrificial Passover lamb that we just read about in 1 Corinthians, that we read about here in John chapter 19. That Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's get busy living rightly for Almighty God, not in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it said multiple times that none of the bones are broken. And then when we get to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, says this, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, wow, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then when we get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, we read this amazing passage of Scripture that says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Make no mistake about it. John wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the kind, the type, the Old Testament object lesson that's found in the Passover lamb is fulfilled once and for all. It is finished in Christ, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed once and for all. 
That's why he's bringing to our attention. These things took place in John 19, 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again in verse 37, and again, another scripture says, Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we read about communion, we read about the Lord's Supper, we understand that we'd have to be absolutely out of our minds to partake in the Lord's Supper in any way other than reverent, cognizant, attentive appreciation for Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, having been sacrificed for us. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.